The new series is called Ephesians, Glory in the Church. We are in Ephesians chapter 1 today. You can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1. And because I was feeling like preaching on something light, I'm going to cover election and predestination this morning. (laughs) I thought I'd give your brains a break from some of the heavier topics of theology. (laughs) When it comes to these topics, there is quite a gravity uh, to, to preaching on them. And I think that it's best to humbly approach the Bible and to allow it to speak for itself on such matters. Uh, I, don't, I don't promise or begin to even pretend to fully comprehend or partially comprehend all of what we're going to cover today. It's pretty mind-boggling. I remember when my daughter Ellie was younger, I said, Ellie, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? And she said, um, can we have dessert? I think that if I could ask God any question, I might ask him to explain these doctrines a little better. (laughs) Because they're uh, pretty challenging. We are in the deep end of the swimming pool today. But I think it's best to just dive in. I think it's best to proclaim the authority of God's word without apology and to allow God's voice to be heard. So let me open with with a theological burst of what the Bible has to say about God's sovereignty in general before we get to God's sovereignty in salvation. Psalm 115.3 makes it clear. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 14.24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God is sovereign, and he rules in the heavens, and he does whatever he wants. It says in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God, thankfully, is good, and therefore his sovereign will is imposed In his goodness. Paul Enns defines God's sovereignty by saying this. God is the supreme ruler and authority. He he ordains whatever comes to pass. And his divine purpose is always accomplished. Now when you look across the landscape of human history. And you begin to think about everything that has happened. There's immediately a problem. a, A confusion. A contradiction of so much In the world doesn't seem to be good. How on earth can there be a sovereign God? Which is why Shakespeare's character Macbeth said this. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And that's seemingly true. The evidence of God's good sovereignty is often not apparent in the details. F.W. Borum, however, said this, We are not the children of chance. Life is controlled by a superb combination of certainties. The world is not, according to the Bible, inherently chaotic, unfair, unguided, and meaningless. 
This world is inherently governed by the sovereign will of a loving God. Down to the atom, up to the galaxy, God has a plan, and it's a good plan. And he reveals his plan and his purpose to us in the Bible. He reveals it to us so that we can embrace his plan, his eternal plan. Now here we are in Ephesians chapter 1, where this plan will unfold before us. And God's sovereign plan of salvation is now what we're zooming in to consider. It says in Ephesians 1 chapter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we're challenging, or we're tackling here, verses 3 through 6. Four verses. And this whole section is, is one long run-on sentence that we're kind of breaking apart. But the first question that we can pull out of the text here is this. You can write this down. Have you embraced God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus? Have you? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It says here that Jesus is Christ and Lord, and so the question, before we go any further, is, have you embraced God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus? We learn a lot from this first verse. We learn that there is a God. Have you embraced the reality that there is a God, or are you still discovering that to be true? There is a God. There is one God. Have you discovered that there is one God, and only one? Uh, have you discovered also that this one God is a father and has one son? the Lord Jesus Christ. These are things about God that he wants you to discover from the very beginning, and they are declared boldly in this verse. We all must discover that there is a God, that he is a father, and that he has a son. He also has a plan, and the plan is a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. In this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says here that God has placed every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it says that somehow these can be ours. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Have you embraced God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus? Sometimes people ask, well, what has God ever done for me? Have you heard people ask that before? What has God ever done for me? Behold, Ephesians 1. I present to you a 202-word run-on sentence. The Apostle Paul was just like breaking all the grammar rules to get everything God has done for us in Christ in one, in one place. Behold. And what he says here couldn't be bigger. Everything heaven has to offer, everything 
is ours in Christ Jesus. What if I surprised you today, and while you were at church, I put in your house everything Walgreens has to offer? I mean everything. And you got home today, and you had the cosmetics, and you had the candy, and you had the cold medicine, all of it. And, and Walgreens was empty, and your house was full of it. What if I took it a, a step up, and instead, what if I surprised you, and waiting for you at home was everything Walmart had to offer? And you got home, and your garage was full of all the bikes, and your living room had all the TVs, and your kitchen had all the food, and your closets had all the clothes, so that it was pouring out of your house, and your neighbors were wondering what was going on. What if I was able to command everything Amazon had to offer you? And there were warehouses now, and you had to buy all the houses on your block to get everything Amazon had to offer. And you had all the technology that this world could offer, every laptop, every smartphone, everything. What if you had it all? What if I was even able to give you the world? All the mountains yours, the sea and everything in it, the sky. What if it was all yours? Listen. Everything heaven has to offer is in Christ Jesus. Everything. Everything. Is Jesus your eternal plan? I'm easy to please, all right, if I'm honest. I'm easy to amaze. There's a restaurant called Uncle Julio's. How many of you have been there? They have something called the chocolate piñata. Here's a picture of it. When you open the chocolate piñata, there is heavenly things inside. Churros, fruit, chocolate. I mean, it's, it, when, I, when I found out what was inside of this chocolate piñata, I, I was like, wow. Now, here we find it's saying this. In Christ is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what that means is this. In his being, when you look at Jesus Christ, you should be blown away by what you see. Wow! What's in there? Wow! But it doesn't just mean in him. It, 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 in him is everything divine. But it also means this. In his church, he has blessed us in Christ. In his church is everything heaven has to offer. The series is called Glory in the Church, and when you look inside the church, you should see all that heaven has to offer. All of it here in glory, because Christ is here. Jot this down. Is Jesus your Lord? It says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Learning the truth about Jesus and learning the truth of the fact that there is a God, he has a son, the son is the plan, should immediately make you ask, is Jesus my plan? And the word Lord doesn't just mean you like him, you like him. It means that you have surrendered your entire life and your being to his lordship. The fact that he's a Christ means he's a Messiah, means he's a savior. That means that your relationship to him is one of him having to rescue you. So have you admitted to him that you need rescuing, that you can't make it to heaven on your own? 
and that everything heaven has to offer can only be yours if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Savior? If he is, everything heaven has to offer is yours. If he's not, then you have nothing waiting for you in heaven. Nothing. Because it's all in him. Is Jesus your Lord? The Bible says there is one God. He's eternal. He existed outside of time and space. The Bible says that Jesus was there with him. Therefore, Jesus wasn't just one of the greats like Gandhi. He's one of a kind. He's divine. And therefore, only Jesus can save you. In John 17, 5, it says this, And now, Father, Jesus says, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Hey, what were you doing before the world existed? What, what were you doing? No one, no one, anyone, anyone. You weren't there? Uh, Jesus was. And one of the most humbling things you can ever face about yourself is your previous non-existence. You were nothing. You were nowhere. That's never been true of Jesus. He's always existed. That makes him a divine being. It's not enough to say I like him or some of his teachings are good. He's God the Son. Therefore, only Jesus can save you. Jesus is the plan. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? If so, you have everything heaven has to offer in him and in you and in here. It's all here. Number one, have you embraced God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now the run-on sentence begins to trace this blessing, this plan, God's activity from before time. So he says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Jot this down. Number two, praise God for choosing to save us. Praise God for choosing to save us. The genre here, the Apostle Paul is writing a, a praise. He's, it resembles a hymn. It resembles a psalm. And when we talk about doctrines like election and predestination, they can be so confusing. But what he did not give us here was a diagram. What he did not give us here was a chart. And so I'm not going to give you that either. So there. All right, I'm not going to bring up a big piece of butcher paper and grab a crayon and draw it out for you. Because this is a praise. This is a hymn. This is, this, is, this, is, this is a declaration of something wonderful and beautiful. And that's the way that we should receive it. Praise God for choosing to save us. This answers the question, what has God done for us in Christ? And the answer defies description. As I was digging into all this all week long, I would try and have conversations with people about it. I'd just stop at the... Uh, secretary's desk, Sharon, I'd be like, Sharon, what do you think about election and predestination? And just, oh dear. As I was driving my daughter Cassie home from work, I said, Cassie, let me explain predestination to you. And so I shared with her all the things that I learned. And then as we were turning down our street, I said, what do you think? And she said, oh wait, what? Dad, I'm sorry, I just totally tuned you out. Can you say it again? I'm like, no. So I hope you won't tune me out. <clears throat> But I'm going to try and explain it. 
Election in its most basic definition is this. God chose to save some. God chose to save some. In its fundamental form, that's all election is. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. There is a choosing. It happens in the heart of God and in the will of God and in the mind of God. It happens in him, which means it's a relational choice the Father and the Son are making. It happened before the foundation of the world, before anything was made or anything done. And it happened that we would become holy and blameless. So it's a transforming decision, meaning those things wouldn't be in place. God had to choose to make them in place. So election is God chose to save some. Election happened in the heart and mind of God before time. It's a sovereign act of God and an expression of his special love. We learn from this that God could have, before time began, chosen none. He could have chosen none. He could have decided to save no one. We learn that he also could have chosen to save all. But he didn't choose to save none. He didn't choose to save all. He chose to save some. How did he do this? Simply put, it says, in him. He chose us in him, in Christ, in Christ. And that phrase is... Um, loaded with, with meaning that is not clearly defined. We don't know the nuance here in Christ, but it includes the decision was being made in eternity past together and that the plan would unfold through the person throughout all time. It's all-encompassing, and it's simply put, in Christ. In Christ is a phrase used 36 times in Ephesians. It's a very important phrase. So election means God chose to save us in Christ before time began. The word us in this passage means the church. It would be those who identify as Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the audience. God chose to save us. When? In him before time began. Jot this down. The Bible is clear that it's before time began. That it's before any of us existed or did anything good or bad before anything in the world happened there was a decision in the heart and mind of God it was before time began now we have to deal with a few things that election generates first of all the word election sounds political doesn't it sound political there's an election coming up it has nothing to do with a political election our elections make it sound like we're being picked because there was something special or popular about us but Election is unmerited, which means there was nothing God saw in you in advance. There was nothing about you that made him select you. He had a special love for you, but it was unmerited. It was unmerited. Election also sounds problematic because the idea that God chose to save us before time seems to contradict with other doctrines like original sin and depravity. If God chose to save us before time, how could he say that we are born sinful and in need of being saved if his mind and heart were already made up? It also seems to contradict um, with the idea in the Bible that God has a deep desire to save all, a deep desire, an expressed desire to save all. In 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, it says this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what we find here is a paradox. A paradox is two things or several things that are all true but that seem to contradict. 
Because of the tension throughout church history, people have tried to resolve it by trying to make a few of the things less true or more true than the others. That makes election controversial. Uh, Throughout church history, as they've tried to resolve the tension in a variety of ways, souls have been scarred. Uh, The church has been destroyed and divided. As I was reading through this in the 1600s, there were people who were beheaded for preaching this wrong. This is a very controversial doctrine. And what I would say is this. um, The Bible teaches clearly that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all in the world, including salvation. And man is responsible. Man is freely responsible to act and to choose and to respond in a way that is in line with God's law. Both of those things are true at the same time. And as people have tried to fit the puzzle pieces together and they can't quite see how they fit, then they've been tempted to just drop one. God is sovereign, you know, that's it. Or man is responsible and it's up to him. You know, we can't drop either. God is fully sovereign and man is fully responsible And those two truths have been married in eternity. We must not divorce them. Therefore, we have to preserve the tension, and I have to present the tension. And what it does is it creates immediate urgency. So what I'm telling you right now is there is a God and there is a plan. And before time began, he chose some in Christ to be saved. And therefore, Jesus is the only plan. I'm also telling you God has a deep and abiding desire to save all, including you. And when you realize that the heart of God has filled everything heavenly in the Son of God and that he sent Jesus into the world to save sinners, you should look at all of that and say, I'm in. I'm in. I get it. Check. I'm in. The plan is presented not to get you to be like, well, I don't know. Am I in or am I not? No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't give you some sort of election detector. You know, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So understanding the tension of the plan that God has chosen to save some and not all, and that it's in Christ should make you say, should compel you to say, should provoke you to say, I'm in. That's the point. It should also warn you clearly what happens if you're out. If you're not in on Jesus, it's crystal clear what that means based on what God is planning from before time. Jot this down. Praise God for choosing to save us to be holy and blameless. The idea of God choosing to save us implies that we would need to be saved. So it describes the outcome here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. To be holy means to be set apart from sin and to be set apart for God. It implies that God had to decide to do that for you. You couldn't do that for yourself. There would be a need for you to be set apart from sin and set apart for God. He would need to do that. The word blameless means without a spot, perfect. And that is the requirement of God. We can't enter into his kingdom if we are spotted up with sin, if the black ink of sin has been spilled all over, over our soul. So God would have to make a way for us to become blameless. And he did that. How? In Christ. Therefore, out of a dark and sinful world, God would save some and make them holy and blameless. How would he do it? In Christ. 
Hey, listen, God is in the heavens, sovereignly directing the affairs of humanity. And he has a plan. He has one plan, and the plan is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ your plan? If he's the only plan, is Jesus your plan? Number one, have you embraced God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus? Is he your Lord? Number two, praise God for choosing to save us before time began to be holy and blameless. Number three, praise God for choosing to adopt us. Praise God. It says, reading on, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now the phrase in love Scholars disagree. Some say that in love belongs with the previous sentence, so we should be holy and blameless before him in love, period. But they didn't use punctuation back then, so we don't know. So it could go either way. It could be that God chose you to be holy and blameless in love, right? Uh, Or in love could modify the predestination. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. I'll assume that it is attached to the predestination because it mentions being adopted as sons and therefore I think the love is implied there. So in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Praise God for choosing to adopt us. This is again happening in the heart of God before time began. God is making a choice. His heart is made up. He chose to adopt us in Christ before the world began. That's called predestination. The destiny is ending up in his family. It happens through Jesus Christ. We're given a portrait here of a loving father building his family through his only son. He has only one son, eternally, Jesus Christ, bound up with the father forever. The rest of his children must be adopted in. And so if you've been adopted into the family of God at a time in your life, then you are one of his. If the adoption has not taken place, then you're not yet his. Praise God for choosing to adopt us. The word predestination means this, to establish a decree, boundary, or decision in advance. To establish a decree, deciding something, or a boundary, marking out someone, something, some group, uh, or a decision in advance. And this all was decided in the heart and mind of God beforehand. Now, when people hear about predestination, they think it it doesn't sound fair and it doesn't sound loving. It doesn't sound fair because it sounds like God's choosing some and not all. It doesn't sound loving because it sounds like God's making up our choice for us. But predestination is neither of those things. Uh, It doesn't inherently mean that uh, God is unfair and it doesn't inherently mean that God is unloving. Let's just face the reality here that if God is deciding to place billions of children in his family, it's a very loving thing to do. Am I right? What are you doing? Deciding to place billions in my family. Wow, that sounds awfully loving if you ask me. Does it sound fair? Well, when the Bible's teaching on depravity is factored in, the fact that we have no right to be in his family, the fact that we have no we, we, we can't deserve to be welcomed into his family. We see that it does sound very loving and very fair, beyond fair, for him to welcome the undeserving into his family. The idea of adoption is a beautiful idea. Of course, the most famous adoption in the Old Testament is Moses. Here's a picture of Moses being drawn up 
from the reeds. There was a decree out to kill every boy in the land. They had to throw him in the river so that he'd be eaten by the crocodiles. Horrible time to be born. And they couldn't keep him hidden anymore, so mom pushed him down the river, and guess what? Pharaoh's daughter found him, found him, and drew him up out of the water, saving him from death, so that he would be raised royalty, and he would become, he would become a royal, rich ruler in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Now, that, that perfectly portrays what God must do for you and me. There you are, cast away in a basket in a world lost at sea, and, and you are going to be swallowed up by death forever, and God must reach down and loving you, lovingly pick you up and put you into his family and make you something special forever. That's adoption. Has God done that for you? Has he done that for you? Maybe you've heard of the Badeau family. The Badeau family had two kids and they got so excited they adopted 20 more. Here's a picture of the family. <clears throat> had two and then adopted 20. Hey, does that impress you? Doesn't that make them special people? Doesn't that? I said to one of our uh, tech team guys this morning, I said, yeah, they had two and they adopted 20. I'll do it if you do it. And he's like, uh-uh, count me out. Adopted 20. Mom wrote a book. The book is called, it's a really funny title. The book is called, Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? Imagine hearing that from 22 kids. The ultimate road trip. Are we there yet? Hey, listen, that's amazing. She wrote a book. Uh, God had one and adopted a billion. Isn't that better? Isn't that more amazing? Isn't the adoptive love of God truly spectacular? Wow, the love of God. Wow. So the idea of predestination here must be coupled with the idea of welcoming you into a loving family by a loving father. Some people are afraid that because predestination happens that you become a robot or you become something that's forced, and that's simply not true. Here's some questions about predestination. Jot these down. Do I have a choice? People want to know, well, do I have a choice then? And the answer is, we'll put it up on the screen, you are free to act, but you are not free to act independently of his authority or supreme command of the cosmos. This is the nature of human will. Uh, all of our choices are voluntary and freely made, but it's not like we ever have had total will to just do what we want. That has never been given to us. That's not what it means to be human. The human choice means we are free to act and to cho choose and decide and respond, but we're not free to act independently of God's authority or supreme command of the cosmos, it's just not possible because he's God. That shouldn't bother you. That shouldn't be like, well, then I'm a robot. No, no, then you're a human. Then you're a human, and he's a God, and you're not. None of this takes away your humanity. God is driving your destiny, but that's what it means to be human. Therefore, if you're a believer, rest assured that your choice to follow Christ was a real personal response to God's love. It was real. And your faith was a real personal choice to respond to God's truth. It was. The Bible confirms this. In John 16, 27, it says this, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That again preserves the tension. It's not like God was just waiting around for you to love him, but your free love of him was part of the plan. It was, it was love. 
initiated it. He governed the whole process, but you did respond in a real way. The Bible, in the Bible, Jesus asked Peter three times, what? Do you, do you, do you, what is he, is he playing games? Is he asking himself this? It's a real question, and it's a real expectation that God has placed on you. He wants you to love him. He also wants you to believe the truth. It says in the Bible, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And therefore, you must respond to the truth of Christ. God doesn't need mind control to save you. He doesn't need that. He can do it freely. He can do it while he's sovereign. But you're making real choices. So do I have a choice? Absolutely. Jot this down. Do others have a choice? Well, what about them? What about in particular the people who don't get saved? Did they even have a choice? Yes. They have a choice freely made. But again... They do not have a choice to act independently of God's authority or supreme command of the cosmos. No one has that choice. So you are not, as a human, free to decide your own destiny. That's never been part of the deal, and it never will be part of the deal. You can't just go into the next life and be like, I've been doing some thinking. I'd like my destiny to be a front row seat to Disney on Ice. That's my heaven. I'll take it now. Uh, No deal. No deal. Because you're not God. You, You have never been granted the right. So I don't know if you think you had it, but you never had the right to determine your own destiny. That's not what it means to be human. And if you demand that right, it will never be yours. You are, however, free to respond to the love and truth of God, and you are free to reject the love and truth of God. And hell is a place for people who reject the love and reject the truth of God. It is unloving for the person who refuses God's love. You're not loving him. And if you refuse Christ, you are rejecting everything heaven has to offer. You can't have anything of God, anything with God, without Christ. The Bible is clear. It's all in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, it says this, The Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The invitation is yours. The invitation is yours. This brings us to the final point. Praise God for choosing to save us. Praise God for choosing to adopt us. Jot this down. Praise God for giving us grace. It says here that we can take the water of life without price. It is freely given and it can only be freely received. It says here in verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's in Christ. Therefore, it is by grace that we are saved, through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How do we know if if we're among the chosen children of God that have been on his heart and mind from the beginning? The only way we can know is if we're in Christ, through faith, by grace. That's the only way we can know. And the word grace means that we haven't earned it. We haven't earned it. So jot this down. We can't earn heaven. 
We can't earn heaven. God is merciful toward those that he saves. So if you find yourself in heaven in 10,000 years, it's because God gave you something you could never deserve. I found a, a cute picture of a girl who won a little beauty contest. Here's a picture. She's called the little pumpkin princess. Little pumpkin princess. She's won a little beauty contest. Little, little tiara on there and her trophy. And she's about to go up there and get her pictures taken, right? She won an award. And that is not how you get to heaven. That is not it. Look what I deserve. You can't earn it through your religious effort. You can't earn it through your charity. You can't earn it by staying away from the big sins. Nothing you do earns heaven. In fact, everything you have done has earned you hell. And everyone who arrives in heaven will have a vacant residency in hell with their name on it. You, in fact, can't get to heaven until you admit you deserve hell and you're a lost cause. God is merciful toward those he saves. We deserve hell. When people ask me about hell, well, how can a good God allow people to go to hell? I always share the same answer. I say, well, hell is my fault. I belong there. But I'm not going to go there because God did something for me. What about those who don't go to heaven? Well, God is patient and good and just toward those he does not save. They will have a fair trial. Sure, you can spend the first 10,000 years in heaven if you're really into CSI. Sure, go into the file cabinets of heaven and make sure no mistakes were made. What about the case of John Anderson? What about the case of Jude? No mistake. No mistake. No mistake. It doesn't look like heaven made any mistakes. Correct. It will be the result of a fair trial that will sentence those to hell forever. But God will have been patient and good and just toward those who did not believe him and did not love him. God will not be found guilty. Praise God for giving us grace. We can't earn heaven. Jot this down. We must receive the free gift of life. And this is what God invites you to embrace today. I hope that you hear that this entire truth is not meant to create this this doctrine as if it's an oil painting. Well, some of you are saved and some of you are not, and that's that good luck. That's not it at all. It's happening right now. The power of God and the love of God and the word of God is flowing right now. And you are being given a chance to respond to what you've heard. There should be clarity in how you can be saved. There should be simplicity that there's no other way. And there should be urgency that's compelling you to say, now, now. Listen, if Jesus isn't your savior, you're missing out on everything heaven has to offer you. And I would ask, what are you waiting for? Heaven, yours, free, forever. What are you waiting for? Uh, hell deserved soon forever i don't want that i don't want that i don't want you to experience that uh don't don't hesitate when heaven is at stake the bible uses the word today to describe when you must respond to the truth you've heard and god is looking straight into your soul to see if you love him, to see if you believe him. Jesus would ask, who do you say I am? And that's a question for you right now. And your eternity hangs on the response to the truth you've just heard.
Let's pray. Father, I, I praise you for your great love for us. Praise you that before time began, there was a God and there was a Savior, Jesus Christ. And there was a plan to rescue us. And there was a heart to bring children into your family forever. Praise you that there is a good God with a great plan from start to finish. Lord, I just pray that this morning, as people have heard the clarifying message of salvation, that there would be some who hear the invitation to take hold of the free gift of eternal life, to come and drink from the wells of salvation, to not wait another second. And I pray that they would rest assured that no one is beyond the power and love of the gospel. No matter how far they have strayed, no matter how bad they have been, show them right now that no one deserves heaven. No one. And the vilest offender can be welcomed as family of God today. In an instant, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did at the cross. I pray that there would be some right now who in their hearts say this, Father, thank you for your glorious plan. I admit I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Say that in your heart to him right now. I admit I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And here and now I invite you to save me by grace through faith in Christ. In Christ. It is in Christ alone that we find everything heaven has to offer. Ask God for everything heaven has to offer right now in Christ. And it's yours. It's yours perfectly. It's yours finally. It's yours fully. And it's yours for all of eternity. I pray, O Lord, that your spirit would come and welcome into the church all those who are being saved right now. Move in power, Father. Call those who are yours into your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.